0: My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, one of the greatest lines ever penned in hymnody, and that is the point of the book of Romans, and uh, particularly chapter 4, which we're going to get back into this morning. And so take your Bibles and turn there to Romans chapter 4, and we started uh, looking at this uh, chapter um, Last Sunday, and because of its um, kind of one main point, I I felt like it was important to kind of just address it all together rather than break it up in a bunch of little parts. And so let me reread for you this chapter, um, Romans chapter 4, just to kind of set it in our minds and our hearts again as we uh, finish up our our study of this uh, very important chapter. Paul writes, "'What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited him as righteousness. Now, the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due.' But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those uh, whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is a man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And this is where we'll pick up this morning. Verse 9, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham, or to his descendants, that he would be heir of the world, was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, "A father of many nations have I made you." In the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Father, thank you for uh, the privilege that we have of holding your word in our hands and um, being able to read it study it, uh, apply it to our lives. But Lord, we know that none of that is possible were it not for your Spirit. And so we ask that the Spirit would come now and illuminate our minds. Lord, help us to understand these verses and how they apply uh, to our lives today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at first, this may seem more like a text for Father's Day. Because we're talking about Father Abraham and the forefather of our faith. But uh, we know that Abraham was married to Sarah. And she's mentioned here uh, in this verse, or in this text, in fact, one place in verse 19. And the one reference has to do with the deadness of her womb. Not a very pleasant. Mother's Day thought, because Mother's Day, for most women, is a happy day, filled with praise and accolades and appreciation from her children. But honestly, for some women, Mother's Day is a hard day, filled with pain and maybe even depression due to the heartbreak of losing a child, or worse, the heartache of never being able to have children. Infertility is one of the deepest heartaches of life, and only a barren woman can truly understand the grief and the, the sorrow, the anguish of having to die to your maternal dreams and, 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 and instincts. But like Hannah uh, of old, the mother of the Old Testament prophet Samuel, many a barren woman have, has faithfully and fervently prayed for divine intervention, and God chose to miraculously bless them with a child. You see, a a supernatural act of God is necessary for a baby to be born to a sterile couple. The Old Testament pair Abraham and Sarah are a testimony to that fact. From a human perspective, there was no possible way that they can conceive a child in light of Sarah's lifelong infertility, not to mention they were beyond the age of childbearing. I mean, they shouldn't have been in the maternity ward. They should have been in the geriatric ward, right? Well, similarly, it, is, it takes a supernatural act of God for someone to be born again or to become a child of God. We know this from John chapter three, uh, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. He said, um, truly, 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 I say to you, unless a man is what? Born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And of course, that got Nicodemus scratching his head going, I don't understand. And, and he said, no, 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 time out. I'm not talking about you crawling back into your mother's womb and coming out again. I'm talking about being born of the spirit. The Spirit of God regenerates you and, and makes you a new creature in Christ. In other words, salvation is a miracle of God It results from divine power, not human effort. And humanly speaking, the only way, the only hope of us ever being rescued from God's wrath is God's grace. Why? Because all of us are spiritually sterile sinners, if you will who can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. We're impotent to make ourselves right with God. And consequently, since it's impossible to make ourselves right with God, we have no other choice but to trust God to make us right with Him by placing our faith in the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And Paul made that crystal clear in the first three chapters of this Letter that he wrote to the believers in Rome. And this this opening section comes to a a, a grand crescendo in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, which is, I think, and others would agree, the greatest explanation in the entire Bible of justification by faith alone. And yet, even though Paul did such an outstanding job explaining this critical doctrine of salvation, he knew that some people would naturally take issue with what he taught about this foundational doctrine. And so in verses 27 through 31, Paul answered some questions, some objections that he anticipated from what we've been calling an imaginary heckler in the crowd, particularly his Jewish readers. Um, And he reaffirmed in no uncertain terms that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He says that in verse 28 of chapter 3, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so as he moves into chapter 4, Paul supported this crucial statement by considering how Abraham was saved or justified to show that salvation has always been and will only be by faith in Christ. We learned last week that the Jews um, naturally assumed that Abraham was, was um, uh, saved by works, by keeping the law, just like everyone else in the Old Testament, But as the founding father of the Jewish nation, in the mind of of every Jew, he was the ultimate example of a righteous man who was acceptable to the Lord based on how he lived his life. In fact, according to rabbinical writings, the Jews believed that Abraham was sinless, if you can believe that, that he had kept the law perfectly and he didn't need to repent of anything. And so from the Jews' perspective, there was no better illustration than Abraham that a person is justified by works. But from Paul's perspective, he saw the exact opposite, that Abraham's life proved that a person is justified by faith apart from works. And so here in chapter 4, again, Paul, acting like a brilliant attorney, uses the, the Jews' star witness against them to prove that justification or salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone and not by works. And so he presented in this chapter four facts regarding how Abraham was saved or made right with God to prove that the only way that any of us can be saved is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so we started looking at these four facts Um, last week. We got through the first one, Abraham was not justified by works. That's the first fact. Abraham was not justified by works. And in the first eight verses here, he, he, he says, let's consider Abraham's testimony. How did he get saved? Verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as Righteousness. Paul was quoting Genesis 15.6, and we took a lot of time last week to go back into the Old Testament and see uh, how the story of of, of Abraham unfolded. But in Genesis 15.6, after he believed in the promise that God gave him that he would have a child, it says that it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Abraham believed Simply believe the promise that God made to him, that he, uh, he would have countless offspring, like the, the, the sand of the sea and the stars in the sky. And, and one of those offspring would be the Savior of the world, namely who? Jesus Christ, through whom all the promises of God would be fulfilled. And so we, we said this is an important Um, verse here, verse three, especially this word credited to him as righteousness. It's used 11 times in this chapter, and it's used to describe a sum of money that was transferred or credited to someone's account. And this is what we know as the doctrine of imputation, that, that when we get saved, our sin is transferred or credited to Christ's account, and his righteousness is transferred or credited to our account. And this transaction has absolutely nothing to do with anything we've done to earn our salvation. It's simply based on our faith in the work of Christ as our substitute in his life and death. He says in verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due? Our employer is obligated to pay us for the work that we do. We deserve to get paid. We earn our paycheck But he goes on in verse 5 to say, but there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor. No matter how hard we work or how many good deeds we do, we will never be acceptable to God based on our own merit. And so he says, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due, verse 5, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To do no work simply means that we don't rely on our own good works. To make us right with God, we simply depend solely on Christ's work on our behalf. And when that happens, we are justified, or God pronounces us righteous, he views us as righteous, and then we become righteous through the process of sanctification. And then he uses the example of David in verses 6 through 8. This is Israel's greatest king, obviously, um, who, who David says is a great example or excuse me, who who Paul said was a great example of how God justifies people by faith apart from works. And he quotes from Psalm 32, which was a psalm of confession that David had written after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah. And uh, there, there was no prescribed sacrifices in the law to atone for the sins of adultery and murder. There was only one thing that you were to do, God said, and that was to stone that guy. David knew he deserved to be stoned. And all he could do was to cast himself on the mercy of God, to have his sin forgiven. And that's exactly what he did. And rather than counting David's sins against him, God covered his sin and provided him a full pardon, not based on anything that David had done, but simply as a free gift of his grace. And so David, back in the Old Testament, experienced the joy of imputed righteousness in that God didn't count his sins against him, which also meant that he counted him or considered him right with him. If we confess our sins God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, believe it or not, David is an example of how we can be justified by faith apart from works when we confess our sin to God. In other words, we agree with God that we're a sinner who deserves to die and go to hell. Confession means to agree with. And then we also confess our faith in Christ. We agree that Christ is the only way that we can have our sins forgiven and be made right with God. And when we do that, God counts or credits our sin to Jesus and at the same time counts or credits Jesus' righteousness to us. And so we saw last week, and just reviewing there, that Abraham was not justified by works. But now let's move on and see the rest of these three facts or these four facts here. Number two, Abraham was not justified by circumcision. He was not justified by works, but he also wasn't justified by circumcision. And again, Paul's anticipating, right, what his Jewish readers would be thinking. And at this point, he anticipated they would be thinking, now wait a minute, if Abraham was justified by faith alone, then why did God command him and his descendants to be circumcised? And so Paul addresses this issue of circumcision in verse 9. He says, Is this blessing then, this blessing that David talks about of imputed righteousness, is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. In other words, is this blessing of being justified by faith alone applied to only those who are circumcised? What about those who are not circumcised? You see, the Jews prided themselves in circumcision and believed that if anyone was to be considered righteous before God, they had to be circumcised and they had to keep the law. So Paul posed an obvious question, regarding when Abraham was justified in relationship to when he was circumcised. How, how then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So the simple answer, Paul says, that to the question is that he was already justified before he was circumcised. He was justified while he was still a, you ready for this, a Gentile. A non Jew. And based on Genesis 15 6, which Paul uses several times in this chapter, when Abraham believed the promise of God that he would have as many descendants as the stars and as the sand, God credited that to him as righteousness. And it wasn't until two chapters and 14 years later. That Abraham was circumcised. You remember last week we looked at you know, chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17 of Genesis, and it wasn't, wasn't until Genesis 17 that, that God commanded Abraham to be circumcised. He was already justified in chapter 15. And so, so Abraham's justification was not based on his obedience to God's command to be circumcised, but based on his faith in God's promise that he and his wife would conceive a son. And yet, even though Paul made sure to keep Abraham's justification separate from his circumcision, he wanted to show that the two are not unrelated either. Notice verse 11, he says, and he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised. So circumcision was not the source of his justification, but the sign or the seal of his justification or his right standing before God. It was how God um, chose to set apart the people of Israel to make them distinct from every other nation. It was a a physical sign of the covenant that God made with them, uh, with with Abraham and his descendants, that that simply confirmed the fact that he was justified and that he and his people belonged to God. Now, this is where um, some, I think, confuse or blur Circumcision and baptism, and uh, there are some in the church today who think that, well, um, man, in the same way that the Jews baptize or excuse me, circumcised—all their their children, um, at least the young men, right, um, to as a sign of the covenant that they belonged to the covenant people. Well, we should baptize our babies for the same reason—that um, that our kids are part of the covenant. And, uh, and so we're going to baptize them, and um, I, I, don't, I don't see the connection. I think that's a huge leap from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, um, that, that baptism is uh, intended, according to the New Testament, to be for believers, not babies, right? But believers as a, an outward sign or seal of the fact that you've been saved, We always say it this way, that baptism is an outward demonstration of an inward decision. Babies can't decide to follow Christ. And it's interesting, if you study the Puritans, this is where they went off the rails. This is uh, the Puritans. I love the Puritans, and uh, there's so much we can learn from the Puritans, but they... Uh, were pedo-baptists, they believed in infant baptism, and so they were baptizing their babies, right, to bring them into the kingdom, if you will. Well, guess what happened when the kids got to be teenagers uh, or older, and, and they, they walked away from the faith, they, they, they um, were no longer part of the church, and uh, why? Because they, they just assumed that, hey, if we baptize these kids, you know, they're going to grow up in the church, and they're just part of the covenant family. Well, they got to get saved, Right? they got to get saved. It's not about getting baptized. They need to get saved, and then they get baptized. It's what's called believer's baptism. But notice what he goes on to say here in verse 11. He says, all this happened so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. So Paul is simply saying that uh, Abraham is the father of all those who have faith like his, regardless if they've been circumcised or not. That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. If you believe in the person and work of Christ, you can claim Abraham as your father, and you can identify as one of his children. All that to say, there's a whole lot of people singing Father Abraham, right? That song, Father Abraham. We all sang that growing up, Father Abraham and sense, right? They're singing Father Abraham, and it ain't true for them. Abraham is not the father of everyone. He's not the father of unbelieving Jews and Muslims or Hindus or Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or anyone else who doesn't believe in Jesus or have a correct understanding of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Abraham is not their father. They can't sing that song. See, only those who are truly saved are his true descendants, and his true descendants are saved the same way he was saved, by faith alone in God's promises, not in any religious activity or ceremony. For the Jews, it was circumcision. For many in the church today, it's baptism. I've I've asked people the question, hey, tell me... When were you saved? When did you become a Christian? And their immediate response is, well, I was baptized, and they give me a time of their baptism. I said, well, well, time out. I didn't ask you when you were baptized. I want to know when you're saved. But there's a lot of people who equate their salvation with, or their baptism with their salvation, or their salvation with their baptism. And and, and they're trusting, and there's some believe that you have to be baptized in order to go to heaven. If that's the case, they're not truly saved because they're trusting in a work, some ceremony, some activity uh, to save them apart from Christ. Some think taking communion, right, is, um, uh, or, or taking the uh, Eucharist, as it's called, a mass, uh, that, that you have to do that in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven. Or maybe being a member of a particular church, that you have to be a member of our church, in order to go to heaven. Well, that's a work. That's some kind of religious activity. That's like being circumcised. And Paul said, no, Abraham was not justified by circumcision, and and neither is anyone else, including baptism and church membership and communion, and you fill in the blank. The third fact that Paul brings up in this chapter is that Abraham was not justified by the law. He wasn't justified by works. He wasn't justified by circumcision. He wasn't justified by the law. Look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Again, Abraham was not justified by obeying the law, but by believing the promise that he would be heir to the world, which meant that someday one of his descendants The Messiah, Jesus Christ, would reign over the entire earth along with all those who placed their faith in him alone for their salvation. And so we need to realize God didn't show up into Abraham's life and say, obey my law and I'll bless you. He said, I'll bless you, believe my promise. Big difference. And Abraham's justification, when he was credited, his faith was credited to him as righteousness, Genesis 15, uh, six, occurred long before God delivered the law through Moses on Mount Sinai. In fact, Paul mentions this with an actual number in Galatians chapter three, verse 15. We looked at this last week, but you can turn back there with me. I just want to look at verses 15 and 16 here. Galatians 3.15, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relationships, even though it is only a man's man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, um, and he does not say and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ, what I am saying is this, here it is, verse 17, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. In other words, the law... Hadn't been given and wouldn't wouldn't be given until 430 years later. How could you say that it was obedience to the law that made Abraham right with God? The law wasn't going to be around for centuries, and even when the law did come, it didn't replace the promise. It didn't nullify the promise. It didn't cancel out the promise. Like, okay, that's no longer valid. This is the new way of getting saved. No, it's still the same way. Verse 14, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. In other words, if you are saved by keeping the law, if you become an heir with Christ by obeying the law, then faith is useless. It's worthless. And the promises of God are no longer applicable. Verse 15, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there also is no violation. Again, this is getting back to the purpose of the law. The law was never intended as a means of our salvation. It was intended to expose our sin and show us that we needed to be saved, right? That we fall so short of God's righteous standards and, and, and we deserve his wrath and his judgment, and so the law was designed to stir up our sin and call down God's wrath upon us and, and and to condemn us for not keeping its commandments perfectly and to help us understand that we are all under the curse of the law, which is death. So we'd cry out for a savior. We'd look for a savior outside of ourselves. Verse 16, he says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. Don't miss that word grace there. It just should jump off the page at us. So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Again, he's repeating the same idea about Father Abraham here, um, that, he, that he shared in verses 11 through 12. Um, Whether you're a Jew, you're a Gentile, it doesn't matter. Um, The point is that we all receive salvation as an undeserved, unearned gift from God to ungodly sinners. It's by grace through faith alone. And notice what he says here. I love this word. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. I think we have here the subject of the assurance of salvation, uh, eternal security, as it's often referred to. In other words, that you can know for sure that you're saved. You don't have to go through life wondering whether or not you're actually going to make it to heaven. Or, or maybe concerned that you might do something uh, so bad that you could lose your salvation? No, this, this sucker's guaranteed. See, if you're, if you're trusting in what you do to save you, then you can't enjoy this guarantee, this assurance of salvation. Why? Because you never know for sure that you've done all you need to do. Or that you've been good enough. And so you live with anxiety and insecurity about your salvation, where you're going to spend eternity. But when you know you can't be good enough, and you know you can't do enough to earn God's favor, and you just simply rely on Christ's goodness and all that he has done, you can have peace, you can have confidence that comes with knowing for sure that you're saved. Why? Because you're trusting God's grace rather than trying to keep God's law. Do you have that assurance of salvation? If you don't, it may be because you're trusting in yourself to make yourself right with God, to earn God's favor, to earn your way, to work your way to heaven. Maybe that's exposing that where your faith lies. It's not in Christ alone, but in yourself. Paul goes on to quote another Old Testament verse to show that it's always been God's intention to honor faith wherever and whenever he finds it. Verse 17, as it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And here we have a transitional statement there This God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Paul's focus here is on God's faithfulness and on, on God's power, which spills over into the verses that follow. But it was these two things, God's faithfulness and God's power, that served as the foundation of Abraham's faith. In other words, God is not only faithful to keep his promises, but he also has the power to keep his promises. I love what Hudson Taylor said, the great missionary to China. He defined faith as trusting in the faithfulness of God. That's all the faith is. You're trusting in God's faithfulness, his power, his ability to keep his promises. And notice he says um, here in verse 17, he gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So Paul mentioned here the two greatest miracles or manifestations of God's power in the history of the universe. First of all, the creation of the world from nothing, ex nihilo as it's referred to at Times and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. So he created the world and he raised Jesus from the dead, which are both examples of what is said in Jeremiah 32 17. Nothing is too difficult for you. You can create all this out of nothing. Um, and uh, oh, and you can raise Jesus from the dead. You can bring somebody back from the dead. You say, well, what's the connection to Abraham here? Well, I think figuratively speaking, Isaac, their son, right? His son was both an act of creation and a resurrection all at the same time. And that God created him out of nothing. There was nothing there. Sarah's womb was barren, so he created this child within her. And he was also received back from the dead, if you remember when God told him to take him up to Mount Moriah, right and kill him. And then he said, "No, don't do it. Now I know that you love me more than you love him." And, and, um, and it says in Hebrews that the only thing that Abraham had, Abraham had to go on was God told me to, God promised me that, that he was going to give me a son, and it was through the son that all of his promises would come. And, and all of these descendants, and, and now he's telling me to kill this son, uh, apparently he's going to bring him back to life. That's, in my mind, that's the only way this could still work, that he could still keep all his promises. I'm going to kill him. I'm going I'm I'm to obey him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to kill him. And I'm just confident that he's going to bring him back to life. And so Hebrew says that he believed that God could raise the dead. But the point here Paul was making, again, is Abraham was not justified by the law, but by faith in God's faithfulness and in God's power. And and then lastly here, as we kind of wind down this chapter, we see the fourth fact is that Abraham was not the only one justified by faith, okay? His whole point is, hey... He wasn't justified by works. He wasn't justified by circumcision. He wasn't justified by the law. He was justified by faith. And oh, by the way, he's not the only one that was justified by faith. In fact, Abraham's faith is the example or the standard for every believer in every generation to come. This is how it is. This is how a person is saved. This is how a person is justified or made right with God. Verse 18, in hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. She was, by the way, 90 years old. Yet with respect to the promise of God he did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised he was also able to perform. Therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness and he repeats verse 3 ultimately he requotes Genesis 15:6 Paul's point is that from a human perspective, it was impossible for this old, barren, sterile couple to have a baby. And yet they placed their hope in God. They hoped against all hope in God's faithfulness and God's power. And I think it's obvious that, that, that God was up to something good here. And um, sometimes in the, the heart hardness and the pain and the grief and the sorrow and the heartache of, of, of infertility, for example, we, we forget that God's up to something good, that God's in it somehow. He, he's doing something good. God works all things together for good to those who love him and are called to his purpose. You see, after making the original promise in Genesis 15, God purposely waited until it was an impossibility for this couple to have children. But in Abraham's mind, the only impossibility was that that God would lie or couldn't lie. That's the only thing impossible in his mind is that God can't lie. He, He... It's impossible to think that he would not fulfill his promise to me. And so despite the utter helplessness and hopelessness of their condition, apart from the miraculous intervention of God, Abraham believed that God was fully capable of doing what he had promised that he would do. And at this point, I think it's good for us to all remember that, whether it's infertility or any other Difficult circumstance in our lives, God promised. God's promises are the surest thing in the world. And that as John Stott says, faith always looks at the problems in light of the promises. Amen? You may find yourself in a very difficult circumstance or situation right now, and you are fighting to believe, struggling to believe that God can handle this that God's got this, doesn't feel like he's got it, doesn't look like he's got it, and you're fighting for faith to believe. And I would encourage you to think on the promises of God. Think about a promise or promises that you know of in God's word that God is obligated, if you will, to keep because he made it, that he will do this. He said he would do it, but hold him to it. Trust in his faithfulness. Trust in his word. And really the ultimate question is, how big is your God, right? How big is your God? If you've got a big God, you've got small problems. But if you've got a small God, you've got big problems. There should be no question in your mind how much God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. That's how much he loves you. So don't ever let Satan confuse you to think that somehow God is not loving me right now through this. No, he is. It's an, it's an act of love, whatever it might be that you're struggling with this morning. He wants to meet your every need He's already met the greatest need, and that was your need of salvation. So whatever other needs you have in your life, that, those are small, right? It was to, the greater to the lesser. Notice how Paul concludes this section. He he applies all that he said about Abraham to believers of all generations. So if you're just about the time, you're thinking, okay, Paul, I appreciate your, your, your love for Abraham, how important you think Abraham is, but you know what? I'm a, I'm a Gentile, and I really don't care about Abraham. <laughs> I can't see how he relates to what I'm going through in my life right now, right? Well, Abraham, or Paul brings it all home here, and he says this in verse 23, now for his sake... Excuse me. Now, not for his sake, only was it written that it was credited to him. But for our sake also, to whom it will be credited. So this, this whole idea that it was credited to Abraham as righteous, his faith was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, his faith, he was made right with God through his faith. It wasn't just for his sake only that this was written, that it was credited to him, but also for our sake. And again, this is a, a good reminder that, that the story of Abraham, like every story in the Old Testament, was written to instruct all of us who have come after these stories. In fact, look at Romans 14, or excuse me Romans 15. just a few pages to the right there, verse four. Romans 15:4 for whatever has written, was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happen to them as an example, talking about the nation of Israel, that they were written for, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. And so all that we looked at last week in the Old Testament about Abraham is very instructive. And it was written down for us in the Bible. The Spirit of God directed men to write that, particularly Moses, to write the first five books of the the Bible into the Pentateuch and to record the story of Abraham. Why? It was for our instruction. What was the lesson that God wanted us to learn from the life of Abraham? Again, we talked about it last week. It's the gospel according to Abraham. That's what he wanted us to, to learn that God imputes his righteousness or credits his righteousness to all who believe that Jesus died for sin and rose again from the dead. Notice he says in verse 24, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who has delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Paul goes from The past to the present. Well, he goes, I guess, from the past to the future to the present. He's talking about those of us who our faith will be credited to us as righteousness also. When we believe in God who raised Jesus from the dead. And then I love verse... 25. It's just like a just a concise and yet comprehensive summary of the gospel message. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Well, what's the gospel? Jesus was crucified and resurrected. According to 1 Corinthians 15:3, that was the gospel that Paul delivered. He says, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And the resurrection, by the way, if you just believe that Jesus died on the cross, but you're not quite sure about the resurrection, whether or not you can really believe that. Well, guess what? You believe half the gospel and you're not saved. You gotta believe the whole gospel. You see, the resurrection was the proof that God accepted or approved of the sacrifice that his son made on the cross. And it assures every ungodly person who trusts in his death as payment for their sin that God is just not to punish them for their sin. Remember that this is all done so that verse 26 of chapter 3, he would be just and the justifier, of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, that you will never experience God's wrath against your sin because it was already poured out on Christ. And the resurrection was was evidence of that, proof of that. By the way, this is God's way of salvation for everyone. His point is, we are saved the same way Abraham was saved. Do you ever think about that? Some people think, well, weren't people in the Old Testament saved differently than... Us New Testament saints? No. We're saved in the same exact way. By faith, but by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. You say, well, wait, time out. Abraham didn't know about Christ. Really? Well, let's think about that a little bit. On, a most, on, the, on the most um, basic level, how was Abraham saved? He simply believed that God would do what he said he would do. And God declared him righteous before him. And it's the same for us. We must simply believe that God will do what he said he will do in order to be saved. Abraham looked forward in faith to something that had yet to be done, and we look backward in faith at something that has been done. In other words, the object of our faith is the same. It's the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that's why Paul said in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation." And then he goes on to say, whoever will, be, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if you were to stand before God, and uh, hypothetically, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would your answer be? I know what mine would be. Hey, I, I, I just did what you said I needed to do. Uh, you said if I did this, you would do this, right? And, and I believe you. That you're going to do what you say, said you would do. That if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I will be what? Saved. I will be declared righteous through my faith in the work of your son. Have you ever thought how fortunate you are? in relationship to when you live, when you're living right now in this era. John Stott said something interesting in his commentary about this. He said, quote, we today are much more fortunate than Abraham and have little or no excuse for unbelief. For we live on this side of the resurrection. Moreover, we have a complete Bible in which both the creation and the resurrection of Jesus are recorded. It is therefore more reasonable for us to believe than it was for Abraham. He didn't have a full Bible. He was on the front side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he was taking all this stuff by faith, even though it hadn't happened yet. Well, guess what? We take it by faith, too, but it's happened. And we can read about it. Turn over to John just really quickly. As we wrap this up, and here we find a fascinating conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees about Abraham. John 8, verse 48. John 8, verse 48. And you know, as well as I do, the Jews had a hard time with Jesus, and especially the religious leaders. And uh, in John 8, verse 48, the Jews answered and said to him, Do, you, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? <laughs> That's just their, that was their opinion of him. You're, 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 you're half-breed and you're demon-possessed. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Even our forefather, Abraham, the great patriarch of Judaism, this righteous man who, who, who was uh, the godliest man who ever lived, he died, and you're, you're, you're saying, what? They, 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 we're not going to die? Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died, the prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Now, check this out. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. What? What? What in the world? Jesus is saying that, 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 yeah, we maybe get to rejoice. He looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, but it says that he saw it. He didn't just want to see it. He actually saw it and was glad. What might Jesus be referring to here? Well, again, going back to what we know about Abraham, he believed God's promised him that the Messiah would come through his descendants. And he saw God begin to fulfill his covenant with him when he blessed he and his barren wife with their son Isaac. And when Abraham willingly offered Isaac on that altar in obedience to God's command, he was given a vivid object lesson of the death and resurrection of the coming the Messiah. I mean, the whole drama of God's redemption of mankind through a sacrificial lamb was played out before his very eyes on Mount Moriah. And so the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? What are you talking about? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Dun, dun, dun. And notice how they responded. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There was no question in the Jews' mind what Jesus meant by that statement that before he was born, I am. He was claiming to be God. And in their minds, that was blasphemy. And so they were going to kill this blasphemer in an act of self-righteousness. But it really just defines for us that there are two classes of people in the world, only two, those who believe that Jesus is who he said he was and he will do what he said he will do and those who don't believe that what group are you in what category are you in are you one of those who believes that jesus is who he said he was and he will do what he said he will do or do you not believe that you can either throw stones at jesus like the Pharisees did, or you can throw yourself at his feet and bow the knee in repentance and faith and receive him as your personal Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, chapter that's so chock full of stuff about Abraham and circumcision and the law and um works and uh, lord so many things that seem antiquated and not applicable to us but lord it is so applicable and thank you lord that for your plan of redemption that has remained the same from eternity past and it will remain the same into eternity future that a man a person can be justified made right with you saved by your grace through faith alone in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that has yet to repent and place their faith in him alone, in Christ alone for their salvation, that today would be the day of their salvation for your glory. And Lord, I pray that you would um, motivate us now as we leave this place to, to take this good news of salvation to those who are striving, trying to be good enough and to do enough good things, uh, hoping against hope that they will make it to heaven someday, that they don't have to live with that fear, with that anxiety, with that insecurity, that they can know for sure that they're on their way to heaven through uh, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So give us opportunities this week, even today, to share that good news with others, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.